Book One, Chapter One, Part Two of The Octopus by Frank Norris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. But evidently it had been decreed that Presley should be stopped at every point of his ride that day, for as he was pushing his bicycle across the tracks, he was surprised to hear his name called. Hello there, Mr. Presley. What's a good word? Presley looked up quickly and saw Dyke, the engineer, leaning on his folded arms from the cab window of the freight engine. But at the prospect of this further delay, Presley was less troubled. Dyke and he were well acquainted and the best of friends. The picturesqueness of the engineer's life was always attractive to Presley, and more than once he had ridden on Dyke's engine between Guadalajara and Bonneville. Once, even, he had made the entire run between the latter town and San Francisco in the cab. Dyke's home was in Guadalajara. He lived in one of the remodeled Dobie cottages where his mother kept house for him. His wife had died some years before this time, leaving him with a little daughter, Sidney, to bring up as best he could. Dyke himself was a heavy-built, well-looking fellow, nearly twice the weight of Presley, with great shoulders and massive hairy arms and a tremendous rumbling voice. "'Hello, old man,' answered Presley, coming up to the engine. "'What are you doing about here at this time of day? I thought you were on the night service this month.' "'They've changed about a bit,' answered the other. "'Come up here and sit down and get out of the sun. They've held us here to wait orders.' he explained, as Presley, after leaning his bicycle against the tender, climbed to the fireman's seat of worn green leather. They are changing the run of one of the crack passenger engines down below and are sending her up to Fresno. There was a smash of some kind on the Bakersfield division, and she's to hell and gone behind her time. I suppose when she comes she'll come a-humming. It will be stand clear and an open track all the way to Fresno. They have held me here to let her go by. He took his pipe, an old T.D. clay, but colored to a beautiful shiny black from the pocket of his jumper and filled and lit it. Well, I don't suppose you object to being held here, observed Presley. Gives you a chance to visit your mother and the little girl. And precisely they chose this day to go up to Sacramento, answered Dyke. Just my luck. Went up to visit my brother's people. By the way, uh, my brother may come down here, locate here, I mean, and, and go into the hop-raising business. He's got an option on five hundred acres just back of the town here. He says there's going to be money in hops. I don't know. Maybe I'll go in with him. Why, what's the matter with railroading? Dyke drew a couple of puffs on his pipe and fixed Presley with a glance. "'There's this the matter with it,' he said. "'I'm fired.' "'Fired? You?' exclaimed Presley, turning abruptly toward him. "'That's what I'm telling you,' returned Dyke grimly. "'You don't mean it. What, what for, Dyke?' "'Now, you tell me what for,' growled the other savagely. "'Boy and man, I've worked for the P&SW for over ten years.' And never one yelp of a complaint did I ever hear from them. They know damn well they're, they've not got a steadier man on the road. And more than that, more than that, I don't belong to the Brotherhood. 
and when the strike came along i stood by them stood by the company you know that and you know and they know that at sacramento that time i ran my train according to schedule with a gun in each hand never knowing when i was going over a mined culvert and there was talk of giving me a gold watch at the time well to hell with their gold watches i want ordinary justice and fair treatment and now when hard times come along and they're cutting wages what do they do do they make any discrimination in my case do they remember the man that stood by them and risked his life in their service no they cut my pay down just as offhand as they do the pay of any dirty little wiper in the yard cut me along with listen to this cut me along with men that they had blacklisted strikers that they took back because they were short of hands he drew fiercely on his pipe i went to them yes i did i went to the general office and ate dirt i told them i was a family man and that i didn't see how i was going to get along on the new scale and i reminded them of my service during the strike the swine told me that it wouldn't be fair to discriminate in favor of one man and that the cut must apply to all their employees alike fair he shouted with laughter fair <laughs> hear the p and s w talking about fairness and discrimination that's good that is well i got furious i was a fool i suppose i told them that in justice to myself i wouldn't do first-class work for third-class pay and they said well mr dyke you know what you can do well i did know i said i'll ask for my time if you please and they gave it to me just as if they were glad to be shut of me so there you are presley that's the p and s w railroad company of california i am on my last run now shameful declared presley his sympathies all aroused now that the trouble concerned a friend of his it's shameful dyke but he added an idea coming to him that don't shut you out from work there are other railroads in the state that are not controlled by the p and s w dyke smote one knee with his clenched fist name one presley was silent dyke's challenge was unanswerable there was a lapse in their talk presley drumming on the arm of the seat meditating on this injustice dyke looking over the fields beyond the town his frown lowering his teeth rasping upon his pipe stem the station agent came to the door of the depot stretching and yawning on ahead of the engine the empty rails of the track reaching out toward the horizon threw off visible layers of heat the telegraph key clicked incessantly so i'm going to quit dyke remarked after a long while his anger somewhat subsided my brother and i will take up this hop ranch i've saved a good deal in the last ten years and there ought to be money in hops presley went on remounting his bicycle wheeling silently through the deserted streets of the decayed and dying mexican town it was the hour of the siesta nobody was about there was no business in the town it was too close to bonneville for that before the railroad came and in the days when the raising of cattle was the great industry of the country it had enjoyed a fierce and brilliant life now it was moribund 
the drug store, the two bar rooms, the hotel at the corner of the old plaza, and the shops where Mexican curios were sold to those occasional eastern tourists who came to visit the mission of San Juan sufficed for the town's activity. At Solitari's, the restaurant on the plaza, diagonally across from the hotel, Presley ate his long-deferred Mexican dinner. An omelette in Spanish-Mexican style, frijoles and tortillas, a salad and a glass of white wine. In a corner of the room, during the whole course of his dinner, two young Mexicans, one of whom was astonishingly handsome after the melodramatic fashion of his race, and an old fellow, the centenarian of the town, decrepit beyond belief, sang an interminable love-song to the accompaniment of a guitar and an accordion. These Spanish-Mexicans, decayed, picturesque, vicious, and romantic, never failed to interest Presley. A few of them still remained in Guadalajara, drifting from the saloon to the restaurant, and from the restaurant to the plaza, relics of a former generation, standing for a different order of things, absolutely idle, living God knew how, happy with their cigarette, their guitar, their glass of mezcal, and their siesta. The centenarian remembered Fremont and Governor Alvarado, and the bandit Jesus Tejeda, and the days when Los Muertos was a Spanish grant, a veritable principality, leagues in extent, and when there was never a fence from Visalia to Fresno. Upon this occasion Presley offered the old man a drink of mezcal, and excited him to talk of the things he remembered. Their talk was in Spanish, a language with which Presley was familiar. Gila Cuesta held the grant of Los Muertos in those days, the centenarian said. A grand man. <laughs> he had the power of life and death over his people, and there was no law but his word. There was no thought of wheat then, <laughs> you may believe. It was all cattle in those days. Sheep, horses, steers, not so many. And if money was scarce, there was always plenty to eat, and clothes enough for all, and wine. Yes, <laughs> by the fat, and oil, too. The mission fathers had that. Yes, and there was wheat as well, now that I come to think of it, but a, a very little. In the field north of the mission, where now it is the seed ranch, wheat fields were there, and also a vineyard, all on mission grounds. Wheat, olives, and the wine. The fathers planted those to provide the elements of the Holy Sacrament. Bread, oil, and wine, you understand. It was like that. Those industries began in California from the church. Now, he put his chin in the air. What would Father Oliveri have said to such a crop as Senor Derek plants these days? Ten thousand acres of wheat. <laughs> Nothing but wheat from the Sierra to the coast range. <laughs> I remember when Bella Cuesta was married. He had never seen the young lady, only her miniature portrait, painted. He raised a shoulder. I do not know by whom. Small, a little thing to be held in the palm. But he fell in love with that, and marry her he would. The affair was arranged between him and the girl's parents. But when the time came that De La Cuesta was to go to Monterey to meet and marry the girl, behold, 
Jesus Tejeda broke in upon the small rancheros near Terabella. It was no time for De La Cuesta to be away. So he sent his brother Esteban to Monterey to marry the girl by proxy for him. I went with Esteban. Oh, we were a company, nearly a hundred men. And De La Cuesta sent a horse for the girl to ride. White, pure white. And the saddle was of red leather, the headstall, the bit and buckles, all the metalwork of virgin silver. Well, there was a ceremony in the Monterey Mission, and Esteban, in the name of his brother, was married to the girl. On the way back, De La Cuesta rode out to meet us. His company met ours at Agatha dos Palos. Never will I forget De La Cuesta's face as his eyes fell upon that girl. <laughs> it was a look, a glance, come and gone like that. He snapped his fingers. No one but I saw it, but I was close by. <laughs> there was no mistaking that look. De La Cuesta was disappointed. And the girl, demanded Presley, she never knew. <laughs> he was a grand gentleman, De La Cuesta. Always he treated her as a queen. Never was husband more devoted, more respectful, more chivalrous. <laughs> but love? The old fellow put his chin in the air, shutting his eyes in a knowing fashion. It was not there. I could tell. They were married over again at the mission of San Juan de Guadalajara, our mission, and for a week all the town of Guadalajara was in fate. Oh, there were bullfights in the plaza, this very one, for five days. And to each of his tenants-in-chief, De La Cuesta gave a horse, a barrel of tallow, an ounce of silver, and half an ounce of gold dust. <laughs> ah, those were the days. That was a gay life. <laughs> this, he made a comprehensive gesture with his left hand, this is stupid. You may well say that, observed Presley moodily discouraged by the other's talk. All his doubts and uncertainty had returned to him. Never would he grasp the subject of his great poem. Today the life was colorless. Romance was dead. He had lived too late. To write of the past was not what he desired. Reality was what he longed for, things that he had seen. Yet how to make this compatible with romance? He rose, putting on his hat, offering the old man a cigarette, the centenarian accepted with the air of a grandee, and extended his horn snuff-box. Presley shook his head. <laughs> I was born too late for that, he declared, for that and for many other things. Adios. You are travelling today, senor. A little turn through the country to get the kinks out of the muscles, Presley answered. I go up into the Quin Sabe, into the high country beyond the mission. Ah, the Quinsabe Rancho. The sheep are grazing there this week. Solatari, the keeper of the restaurant, explained. Young Annixter sold his wheat stubble on the ground to the sheep raisers off yonder. He motioned eastward toward the Sierra foothills. Every Sunday the herd has been down. Very clever, that young Annixter. He gets a price for his stubble, which else he would have to burn and also manures his land as the sheep move from place to place. <laughs> a true Yankee, that annexed there. A good gringo. 
After his meal, Presley once more mounted his bicycle, and leaving the restaurant and the plaza behind him, held on through the main street of the drowsing town. The street that further on developed into the road which turned abruptly northward and led onward through the hop fields and the Quien Sabe ranch toward the mission of San Juan. The home ranch of the Quien Sabe was in the little triangle, bounded on the south by the railroad, on the northwest by Broderson Creek, and on the east by the hop fields and the mission lands. It was traversed in all directions, now by the trail from Hooven's, now by the irrigating ditch, the same which Presley had crossed earlier in the day, and again by the road upon which Presley then found himself. In its center were Annixter's ranch house and barns, topped by the skeleton-like tower of the artesian well that was to feed the irrigating ditch. Further on, the course of Broderson Creek was marked by a curved line of gray-green willows, while on the low hills to the north, as Presley advanced, the ancient mission of San Juan de Guadalajara, with its belfry tower and red-tiled roof, began to show itself over the crests of the venerable pear-trees that clustered in its garden. When Presley reached Annixter's ranch house, he found young Annixter himself stretched in his hammock behind the mosquito bar on the front porch, reading David Copperfield, and gorging himself with dried prunes. Annixter, after the two had exchanged greetings, complained of terrific colics all the preceding night. His stomach was out of whack, but you bet he knew how to take care of himself. The last spell he had consulted a doctor at Bonneville, a gibbering busy face, who had filled him up to the neck with a dose of some hogwash stuff that had made him worse. A healthy lot the doctors knew, anyhow. His case was peculiar. He knew. Prunes were what he needed, and by the pound. Annixter, who worked at the Quien Sabe Ranch, some four thousand acres of rich clay and heavy loams, was a very young man younger even than Presley, like him a college graduate. He looked never a year older than he was. He was smooth-shaven and lean-built, but his youthful appearance was offset by a certain male cast of countenance, the lower lip thrust out, the chin large and deeply cleft. His university course had hardened rather than polished him. He still remained one of the people, rough almost to insolence, direct in speech, intolerant in his opinions, relying upon absolutely no one but himself. Yet, with all this, of an astonishing degree of intelligence, and possessed of an executive ability little short of positive genius. He was a ferocious worker, allowing himself no pleasures, and exacting the same degree of energy from all his subordinates. He was widely hated, and as widely trusted. Everyone spoke of his crusty temper and bullying disposition, invariably qualifying the statement with a commendation of his resources and capabilities. The devil of a driver, a hard man to get along with, obstinate, contrary, cantankerous. But brains? No doubt of that. Brains to his boots. One would like to see the man who could get ahead of him on a deal. Twice he had been shot at once from ambush on Osterman's ranch, and once by one of his own men whom he had kicked from the sacking platform of his harvester for gross negligence. At college he had specialized on finance, political economy, and scientific agriculture. After his graduation, he stood almost at the very top of his class, he had returned and obtained the degree of civil engineer, 
Then, suddenly, he had taken a notion that a practical knowledge of law was indispensable to a modern farmer. In eight months he did the work of three years, studying for his bar examinations. His method of study was characteristic. He reduced all the material of his textbooks to notes. Tearing out the leaves of these notebooks, he pasted them upon the walls of his room. Then, in his shirt-sleeves, a cheap cigar in his teeth, his hands in his pockets, he walked around and around the room, scowling fiercely at his notes, memorizing, devouring, digesting. At intervals he drank great cupfuls of unsweetened black coffee. When the bar examinations were held, he was admitted at the very head of all the applicants and was complimented by the judge. Immediately afterwards he collapsed with nervous prostration. His stomach got out of whack, and he had all but died in a Sacramento boarding-house, obstinately refusing to have anything to do with doctors, whom he vituperated as a rabble of quacks, dosing himself with a patent medicine and stuffing himself almost to bursting with liver pills and dried prunes. He had taken a trip to Europe after this sickness to put himself completely to rights. He intended to be gone a year, but returned at the end of six weeks, fulminating abuse of European cooking. Nearly his entire time had been spent in Paris, but of this sojourn he had brought back but two souvenirs, an electro-plated bill-hook and an empty bird-cage which had tickled his fancy immensely. He was wealthy. Only a year previous to this his father, a widower, who had amassed a fortune in land speculation, had died, and Annixter, the only son, had come into the inheritance. For Presley... Annixter professed a great admiration, holding in deep respect the man who could rhyme words, deferring to him whenever there was a question of literature or works of fiction. No doubt there was not much use in poetry, and as for novels, to his mind, there were only Dickens' works. Everything else was a lot of lies, but just the same it took brains to grind out a poem. It wasn't everyone who could rhyme brave and glaive and make sense out of it, sure or not. But Presley's case was a notable exception. On no occasion was Annixter prepared to accept another man's opinion without reserve. In conversation with him it was almost impossible to make any direct statement, however trivial, that he would accept without either modification or open contradiction. He had a passion for violent discussion. He would argue upon every subject in the range of human knowledge, from astronomy to the tariff, from the doctrine of predestination to the height of a horse. Never would he admit himself to be mistaken. When cornered, he would entrench himself behind the remark, Yes, that's all very well. In some ways it is, and then, again, in some ways it isn't. Singularly enough, he and Presley were the best of friends. More than once, Presley marveled at this state of affairs, telling himself that he and Annixter had nothing in common. In all his circle of acquaintances, Presley was the one man with whom Annixter had never quarreled. The two men were diametrically opposed in temperament. Presley was easygoing, Annixter alert. Presley was a confirmed dreamer, irresolute, inactive, with a strong tendency to melancholy. The young farmer was a man of affairs decisive, combative, whose only reflection upon his interior economy was a morbid concern in the vagaries of his stomach. Yet 
the two never met without a mutual pleasure, taking a genuine interest in each other's affairs, and often putting themselves to great inconvenience to be of trifling service to help one another. As a last characteristic, Annixter pretended to be a woman-hater, for no other reason than that he was a very bull-calf of awkwardness in feminine surroundings. Females! Rot! There was a fine way for a man to waste his time and his good money, lollygagging with a lot of females. No, thank you. None of it in his, if you please. Once only he had an affair, a, a timid little creature in a glove-cleaning establishment in Sacramento, whom he had picked up heaven knew how. After his return to his ranch, a correspondence had been maintained between the two. Annixter taking the precaution to typewrite his letters, and never affixing his signature, in an excess of prudence. He furthermore made carbon copies of all his letters, filing them away in a compartment of his safe. Ah, it would be a clever female who would get him into a mess. Then, suddenly smitten with a panic terror that he had committed himself, that he was involving himself too deeply, he had abruptly sent the little woman about her business. It was his only love affair. After that he kept himself free. No petticoats should ever have a hold on him. Sure not. As Presley came up to the edge of the porch, pushing his bicycle in front of him, Annixter excused himself for not getting up, alleging that the cramps returned the moment he was off his back. "'What are you doing up this way?' he demanded. "'Oh, just having a look around,' answered Presley. "'How's the ranch?' Say, observed the other, ignoring his question, what's this I hear about Derrick giving his tenants the bounce and working Los Muertos himself, working all his land? Presley made a sharp movement of impatience with his free hand. I've heard nothing else myself since morning. I suppose it must be so, <laughs> grunted Annixter, spitting out a prune stone. You give Magnus Derrick my compliments and tell him he's a fool. What do you mean? I suppose Derrick thinks he's still running his mine, and that the same principles will apply to getting grain out of the earth as to getting gold. Oh, let him go on and see where he brings up. That's right, there's your western farmer, he exclaimed contemptuously. Get the guts out of your land, work it to death, never give it a rest. Never alternate your crop. And then when your soil is exhausted, sit down and roar about hard times. I suppose Magnus thinks the land has had rest enough these last two dry seasons, observed Presley. He has raised no crop to speak of for two years. The land has had a good rest. Ah, yes, that sounds well, Annixter contradicted, unwilling to be convinced. In a way, the land's been rested, and then again, in a way, it hasn't. But Presley, scenting an argument, refrained from answering, and bethought himself of moving on. "'I'm going to leave my wheel here for a while, Buck,' he said. "'If you don't mind, I'm going up to the spring, and the road is rough between here and there.' "'Stop in for dinner on your way back,' said Annixter. "'There'll be venison steak. One of the boys got a deer over in the foothills last week, out of season, but uh, never mind that. I can't eat it. This stomach of mine wouldn't digest sweet oil today. Get here about six. Well, maybe I will, thank you, said Presley, moving off. By the way, he added, I see your barn is about done. You bet, answered Annixter. 
In about a fortnight now she'll be all ready. It's a big barn, murmured Presley, glancing around the angle of the house, toward where the great structure stood. Guess we'll have to have a dance there before we move the stock in, observed Annixter. That's the custom all around here. Presley took himself off, but at the gate Annixter called after him, his mouthful of prunes. Say, hey, take a look at that herd of sheep as you go up. They're right off there to the east of the road, about half a mile from here. I guess that's the biggest lot of sheep you ever saw. You might write a poem about them. Lamb, ram, sheep graze, sunny days. <laughs> Catch on! Beyond Broderson Creek, as Presley advanced, tramping along on foot now, the land opened out again into the same vast spaces of dull brown earth, sprinkled with stubble, such as had been characteristic of Derrick's ranch. To the east, the reach seemed infinite, flat, cheerless, heat-ridden, unrolling like a giant scroll toward the faint shimmer of the distant horizons, with here and there an isolated live oak to break the somber monotony. But bordering the road to the westward, the surface roughened and raised, clambering up to the higher ground on the crest of which the old mission and its surrounding pear trees were now plainly visible. Just beyond the mission, the road bent abruptly eastward, striking off across the seed ranch. But Presley left the road at this point, going on across the open fields. There was no longer any trail. It was toward three o'clock. The sun still spun, a silent, blazing disk high in the heavens, and tramping through the clods of uneven, broken plough was fatiguing work. The slope of the lowest foothills began. The surface of the country became rolling, and suddenly, as he topped a higher ridge, Presley came upon the sheep. Already he had passed the larger part of the herd, an intervening rise of ground having hidden it from sight. Now, as he turned halfway about, looking down into the shallow hollow between them and the curve of the creek, he saw them very plainly. The fringe of the herd was some two hundred yards distant, but its farther side, in that elusive shimmer of hot surface air, seemed miles away. The sheep were spread out roughly in the shape of a figure eight, two larger herds connected by a smaller, and were headed to the southward, moving slowly, grazing on the wheat stubble as they proceeded. But the numbers seemed incalculable, hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of gray, rounded backs, all exactly alike, huddled, close-packed, alive, hid the earth from sight. It was no longer an aggregate of individuals. It was a mass, a compact, solid, slowly-moving mass, huge, without form, like a thick-pressed growth of mushrooms spreading out in all directions over the earth. From it there arose a vague murmur, confused, inarticulate, like the sound of very distant surf, while all the air in the vicinity was heavy with the warm, ammoniacal odor of the thousands of crowding bodies. All the colors of the scene were somber. The brown of the earth, the faded yellow of the dead stubble, the gray of the myriad of undulating backs. Only on the far side of the herd, erect, motionless, a single note of black, a speck, a dot. The shepherd stood, leaning upon an empty water trough, solitary, grave, impressive. End of Book One, Chapter One, Part Two